I'm Laura Vinrit Pool of Capital, and this is what we wore. Wes Gordon is the creative director of famed fashion house Carolina Herrera. Wes shares his journey from being a young independent designer to working with the legendary Mrs. Herrera who selected him to carry on the house's vision. So you're back and settled and back from Brazil and and luckily no jet lag in Brazil. Isn't that the best thing about traveling to South America? (laughs) Correct, except after Brazil, Paul and I went to Denmark and then Norway. Um, So we just got back a couple days ago. So lots of jet lag. And just you two or little people too? No no little people. They were, um, they're very Uh, busy with their routines at home. So Um, (laughs) no, it was um, Paul's uh, trustee at the Whitney. So it was the trustee trip. And so it was really cool. So I went from like working hard in Rio to just being like a plus one and just going for the ride. (laughs) I love it. So nice about just not knowing where I'm going for lunch, but just being led into a restaurant and put down at a table and food appears and just going along with it. And then we just got back um, in time for Henry's second birthday. And so Henry is your first and your baby is? We have Henry and we have Georgia. Henry's two and Georgia's four and a half months. Well, yes, that would have been a tough trip. That would have been zero point to do it. <laughs> Wes, the first time I met you, and pretty obvious in just the conversation just now, for me, it was obvious that you were from the South because you are so warm and friendly <laughs> and normal. Like I, the first time I met you, I was like, oh, I'm so relieved. Tell me about where you're from and, and what that means to you. Well, thank you, first of all. Um, I am from a lot of places. I was born in <laughs> Chicago. My parents are Midwestern, and they met at University of Illinois. And then I lived there for a few years before moving to Minneapolis, lived there for a few years before going to Atlanta. And I really call Atlanta home because that's where I spent the majority of school. That's where my family still lives. So I kind of call that home. I'm not a Southerner by the Southern definition, um, but it's definitely kind of my, what I consider to be home. And then I went to school in London uh, for fashion uh, and then kind of always knew that I want to be an American designer. I want to live in New York. And so I liked the idea of studying somewhere else and then coming back and moved to New York right after I graduated. I want to hear a little bit more about Atlanta and sort of how that was formative to you and in, in your childhood. You know, I think, I mean, I'm sure you'd agree that there's definitely like a respect and reverence placed on aesthetics in the South, right? Mm. In all shapes and form. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of pride, I think. And it's about how your garden looks, your house, how you're dressing in a way that you don't always see in other regions. Like I think that the beautiful thing about Atlanta, and this isn't always, this is, it isn't even just tied to socioeconomics, but it's like, there's just street after street of immaculate, beautiful house. It's not to say that they're expensive fancy houses. There's everything's beautiful and the gardens are planted and there's just this idea of celebrating beautiful things and self-respect i think yeah people can kind of talk about how things are move at a slower pace sometimes in the south and i think that's something that's really important and beautiful in a day and age where the world can move too fast yeah it's so easy to become distracted by scary things that 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 pausing a little bit to literally smell the roses and appreciate the everyday and the details of the everyday and celebrate those moments is so important and so Southern, I think, at the same time. How would your parents describe you as a child? How would my parents describe <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a 
very old soul. Like mm-hmm. I, cool Friday night to me when I was like young in school, would be like going to Blockbuster to like rent a movie to watch with my parents. <laughs> I um, was a big reader. I was always drawing. Uh, I was very precocious. I was very um, into clothes. I was very, um, you know, into kind of all things aesthetic for better or worse. Over the course of lower school, middle school, and high school, I tried once every single sport and team activity and successfully um, realized I hate all of them, <laughs> <laughs> which was fine. I thought the sports were just fine without me. And who in your life represented style to you? Where did you see it up close? Definitely my mom. You know, mm-hmm. is I have a very elegant mother who who it was. It's not about like um, was never would never shop like designer labels necessarily but would just the way she would compose herself and her outfits was always so beautiful and she always looks amazing I've met your mom she's really beautiful oh thank you yeah she's um no she's great uh I'm actually we're going on a trip together for we haven't taken I haven't taken my mom on a trip in a long time and we're going to see Monticello for the first time oh amazing oh my god I can't wait to hear about it I've never been it's like and it's a really good halfway point between Atlanta and New York. So we're doing oh, that's that. awesome. Weekend. The gardens are supposed to be spectacular. Have you not been? I've not been. Oh, see, so many people haven't been, and it's such a, a treasure we have here. Um, I've barely done DC either. I mean, I feel like a terrible mother because I sort of miss that too. Like walking around DC, you feel like powerful. You feel like you're in like the center of the world, kind of. You get like a little stand up straighter. We digress. I'm sorry. Yeah, we digress. <laughs> that's what a podcast is for. It's not like Yes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> That's uh, what the editor is for, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, so was how did you become interested in fashion and that like how did you see that that could be a career? My whole idea of fashion and my whole early awareness of fashion and love of it and this idea of elegance and beauty was very much an outsider's idea, right? Mm. Like I wasn't living in New York. I wasn't at the epicenter of these things. I wasn't like I didn't live with parents who were at fashion shows. Like it was very much this kind of outsider looking in and like how I imagine things to be or films I would see or, or magazines I would read. Um, my mom had a set of 1950s Barbies that I still think of as like, the <laughs> it, it was a very romanticized idea of the world of fashion. And it's amazing now just the access kids have today versus then. And this hasn't mm-hmm. been that long, you know, this has been a blip in like the history of humanity, but like, yeah. A, a, a total transformation. I mean, at that time, to live in Atlanta, which is a major city, but wasn't a fashion city, if I was interested in fashion, I really had to dig. Like, I, I was going to like used bookstores and I'd occasionally find like a tattered coffee table book of Valentino or Armani or something that I, I would take home. Now, with Instagram, with the internet, like a, you could live anywhere and see every fashion show. You could see everything right away. Yeah. But for me, it was much more of an investigation. So I, I was finding vintage books. At the time, Dior was streaming the couture shows, the Galliano shows on their website. And it would like load really slowly and it would make that like <laughs> horrible noise in between. <laughs> but it was magic. So, so. To me in Atlanta, loving this concept of fashion and the magic of fashion and this fantasy, to see a Galliano show where it's like mm. Egyptian shows and these incredible collections, it's all of that and more, right? It really just, that really sealed the deal for me. And I found a woman in Atlanta who had come from Russia and 
had kind of set up a shop doing custom dressmaking and alterations. Hmm. And I convinced her to teach me sewing and pattern making. And I would go after class. I, w- I didn't tell anyone at school because I was like very scared to tell kids hmm. at school that like I was into this. I would go after like swim team practice or like whatever I had to do at school and stay there late at night with her sewing. She had me, she would give me lines. She was very like Russian. Like, so I very strict and like, mm-hmm. uh, and she'd give me lined blue lined writing paper and I'd have to sew it without thread in the machine, following all the blue lines of the paper. And then I kind of kept hearing about this school, central St. Martin, central St. Martin's knowing nothing about it. Like, this is not like a school that like my college counseling office was like talking to me about. Right. I, <laughs> in a few, I encountered it in a few books, like, um, you know, uh, Alexander McQueen, John Galliano, who I just thought was like this incredible magician based on these Dior shows, Stella McCartney, people like I just kept hearing the name Central St. Martin's. And it became a fixation to me to go there. And up to this point, had you been sketching? I mean, did were you sketching constantly? Like the market, oh, really? my homework, like everything, sketching constantly, boxes, wow. and boxes of sketches. So you had a portfolio basically when you yeah, except yeah. the problem that I didn't know is when you're applying to these schools, you're applying not with a fashion portfolio, you're applying with a fine art portfolio. Oh wow. So then I had to kind of like really quickly try to make a fine art portfolio. And I enrolled in like figure painting classes at the mm. art institute that started at like 8 p.m. and I was the only kid there <laughs> so I do my math homework and then go there and um and I built a portfolio really quickly I was kind of leading these two parallel lives mm. and then applied and got in and really this what this whole story is Laura more than anything is a, a testament to my parents I remember going down one night to my dad who played big 10 football and like was watching a football <laughs> game with like arms full of sketches of dresses being like, I want to be a fashion designer. And they were amazing and they continue to be amazing. So yeah, so I graduated and moved to London (laughs) there for four years. What was it like on your first day of school and how nervous were you? I mean, you you know, love it. You know, Atlanta, like like a very lovely, but conservative traditional Southern (laughs) private school. And like art school in London is... (laughs) as like wacky and crazy and creative as it can get. But I always like that. I, I think that's a, a, that, you know, that rather than being a, a weakness for me, I think that's become a strength, this idea mm-hmm. of, kind of the contrast. How did you evolve as a person in your experience there? It, it pushed me creatively. I mean, the beauty of fashion school and art school period and why it's so important is it's a time for someone who's going to be a creative professional to find themselves and to find a voice without the hindrance and limitations and confines of commerce, right? Like mm, you're, yeah. you're there for four years where you just create and play and do. And this was such a fun moment in London. This was like Amy Winehouse, Pete Doherty, like Kate Moss, and, wow. you know, all of this kind of energy. Huh. So it's very cool to be an art student then. And then just to even add more contrast to that, like while it's like the crazy kids at St. Martin's going out clubbing and like crazy outfits, I um, spent two summers with Oscar de la Renta um, wow. interning, like all summer internships. So I moved to New York. I spent every penny in my savings account on my wardrobe for <laughs> my internship, literally every penny. Uh, <laughs> and I remember taking the subway and like, or like, 
not letting myself sit down because I didn't want to like wrinkle my linen suits I was wearing. Mm. Wasn't he such an incredible person? And we, I think you and I have talked about this before. Other than you, truly, I have never come across a person that was such a gentleman and such a real person in fashion. That's very nice to say. He's He was a much better gentleman than I am. But I think, <laughs> but what's amazing about him and Carolina Herrera and these kind of great, I don't want to say old guard, but these great kind of founders of, uh, mm. of what's unfortunately uh, an endangered species now, these American legacy yeah. houses, is they all lived and worked under a philosophy that life and beauty and design is bigger than a dress, is bigger than a shirt, mm. right? And I always found that so inspiring. Like if you look at Mrs. Herrera, if you look at Oscar, if you look at Ralph Lauren, there's just as much emphasis, even Valentino, there's just as much emphasis on the vase of flowers on a table as there is on the dress. And it's about living beautifully and living happily and family and friends and laughter. And it's all those things together that make you the designer that you are. And graciousness and generosity, I think. And you feel that. You always felt that with Oscar completely from showroom to receiving the clothes. And I think you certainly feel it at Carolina with you. Thank you. But it's very different, Wes. Like, that's not a normal occurrence for us. But it's a a tough business. I think it's hard to, you know. It's it's a really stressful business. It's it's a hard <laughs> industry. It moves really fast. It's a lot of pressure. There's a, there's a financial reality to the business. It's really difficult, and it's easy to become very anxious and stressed about that. So, you know, I, I'm incredibly grateful for my husband, for my kids, for my dog. We have a place in the country that we go to on the weekends for my friends, because I, I it it gives me the luxury of having that balance. Because I think it's, thing, you know, it gets hard when you don't have that balance. Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, the pressures involved probably make most people just not even be able to see through it. And, you know, it's, it's I have to like just qualify that by saying that those people, even if, you know, if you find them, if they're not being gracious or if they're just so tightly wound, it's coming from a place of a beautiful place. I mean, all of these people got in this industry because they love fashion. I mean, Laura, you and I both know there are easier ways to make money. There are less stressful than <laughs> working. <Yes. laughs> like it, it's, I, I respect, I'm on the board of Parsons now. And every year I see these kids coming through who are going out into this world, just motivated by this joy they have of design, this passion, this excitement they have for making something new. So everyone who works in this business is very special to me because it just, it's, it's that dedication and that passion is rare. You don't find that in many other fields. Agreed. So at what point at Central St. Martin's, or was it from the very beginning, at what point did you see yourself as a designer and see that this was a path that you could really take? From the very beginning. I mean, I went there. Oh, I love it. Be a designer. And I, you know, for better or for worse, fashion is, a, it's not like a lawyer where you, you can't graduate law school and start your own law firm. But <laughs> in fashion, no one will really stop you if you graduate and say, I'm going to start my own line. It was very, very small, very humble. You know, it was, I lived in a live workspace. I had a couple interns and like a friend who was helping me and um, put together a few small pieces and showed it in a hotel room. Yeah. Uh, on not even really on models. I think I was doing, holding them on hangers and talking to people <laughs> collection all day. The largest expense of the whole presentation was 
it was freezing cold in a blizzard and we thought it'd be charming to have hot chocolate for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so that like room service bill, I remember was what oh like, my God. the company out of business. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. And it, it, in hindsight, like I'm so grateful for every second of it. You know, there it was every moment was a roller coaster. It was up and down and cash yeah. realities. And I did it for eight years. And yeah. we worked with amazing people. We worked with you guys. I, I met so many yeah. friends. I, I, you know, it's any small brand. And, and this is why, you know, first of all, I hope everyone buys Herrera. Secondly, if you're not going to buy Herrera, <laughs> buy, small brand. buy young designers. Yeah. yeah, because it's really, you know, as consumers, we we don't give a small brand any slack, right? They hang next to established brands just because by, by the amount of their economies of scale should mean that their clothes are so much more expensive than the established brands. Yeah. Yet we as consumers expect them to be less expensive yeah. and better. Like, yeah. right, if we're going to forego buying a known brand for a young brand. So it just kind of puts them in an impossible predicament. So I really like, you know, it's, it's I'm very sympathetic to everyone who has their own collection. That said, it's an amazing thing. And I did it, like I said, eight years, which is like dog years. Um, <laughs> and we did a lot of cool things. We, we you know, um, did shows and fashion week, but it was just getting to a point where it's kind of like, what is the business future of this? And as I was kind of thinking about this, I received a call from the now president of Herrera, Emily Rubenfeld, who's amazing, who was just starting in, in her role to see if I'd be interested in consulting. Because Mrs. Herrera, unbeknownst to me, was kind of early in the process of stepping away. So I, I came in and of course I was like the idea of this. I mean, listen, if you're a kid from Atlanta who has this outsider's fantasy of fashion, who grew up loving like Valentino and the magic of these grand American houses, Herrera is a magical thing. I mean, Herrera is, was, is, and hopefully forever will be a, a cornerstone of 7th Avenue American elegance. Sparkling jewel. The sparkling joy. <laughs> and again, there are very few of these left, right? Bill yeah, Blanks, yeah. Falston, Jeffrey Bean, these these houses are not what they were. So of course I, I left at the opportunity. I, I had several interviews with different people. And then finally the day came, actually it was on a Monday, but I didn't know it until like 9 p.m. on a Sunday night. I got a text asking <laughs> if the next morning I could come in to meet with Mrs. Herrera, which like, I... I, I <laughs> I mean, Mrs. Herrera is arguably one of the most elegant, composed, mm. chic women on the planet. Um, so the idea of getting ambushed like six hours before <laughs> the meeting with her really stressed me out. But it was probably for the best. But like, I, yeah, like I'm like, I would have gotten a haircut. I would have exactly <laughs> checked my dry cleaning situation. So I went to the office and met with her. And very much like I was just telling you. We spent the first five minutes talking about the actual job and the company and, you know, what it consists of. And the remainder of that hour talking about anything but that. We were talking about our dogs. We were talking about mm -hmm. the restaurant. We were talking about the books we're reading, the shows we're watching. Yeah. And it just really reinforced what I think Herrera is and, and what great fashion should be. And it's it's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of living. It's It's more than just that dress. You know, it's it's... It's trying to foster, find, create beauty in a world that needs more of it. Your eight years running your own brand, what what did you learn that made you believe that this was something you could do? Because when you got the call from Emily, did you think that that's what ultimately this could be? 
that, that you were designing for Herrera? I never really thought about it that strategically, right? I mean, I, when you have your own business, sometimes it's hard to think ahead anymore. You're yeah. so focused on in the moment. <laughs> a few things I think that I'm grateful for that I really feel have made me able to do my current job well. One is that when I started the collection, it was 2009. Mm. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> yeah. Terrible time to so sorry. art and design school. <laughs> but it can't get worse. <laughs> couldn't get worse. Either wanting to get hired as a designer or start your own collection, right? I mean, you know, the retail industry was, a, was still kind of recovering and in a disaster. So even if some stores came and liked the collection and, you know, Saks came and liked it, Harrods came and liked it, no one really had the budget to buy mm. a young brand they didn't know. Yeah. Instead, what they were willing to do was all, give me the opportunity to do trunk shows because, you know, a trunk show, um, as you know, is uh, more or less risk-free to the retailer because basically everything then that they're going to purchase has been pre-sold. So I, that was my kind of my only chance. And so I ended up doing a full road show, just constantly on the road taking- And I'm sure the buyers loved you. The customers, for sure. Like, but but it was the most amazing boot camp for me because until mm. then I I was like this you know I, I had this kind of just fantasy of what fashion was living in Atlanta. Then I went to art and design school in London, which is an amazing opportunity to be you know like I made my final collection out of blown glass. Like it's amazing time to just do freaky things, <laughs> but never in that process have I really spent time with who is the customer to spend years on the road literally, I mean, arriving in the morning to the store with a suitcase, unpacking all the clothes, steaming them, <laughs> spending two days there with women in fitting rooms, talking to them, seeing them try on clothes was like a master's and doctorate in, in fashion for me. Totally uh, agree. And it taught me so, so much. And then the other thing is being a small designer with you have three or four people working there, you know, I was sketching the clothes. I was ordering the fabric, <laughs> writing the POs. I was running up and down to factories in the San garment district, <laughs> getting the things made. I was going and buying the zipper. I, you know, was was fitting the models, styling the show, doing a Photoshop rendering of our show invitation, and then doing market week and doing just and doing production fittings. Every step of the process. And had I graduated <laughs> from school and gone to work in a design studio, I would have had a lot more time and different experience and for better or for worse, you know, with sketching and doing other things, but it would have been super limited and narrow and having this full kind of touching every department proved to be really crucial going mm -hmm. to a house that we're kind of doing not a rebrand at all, but kind of doing a, a, a redecoration call it or a, mm -hmm. a renovation of an existing house Yeah, uh, because doing that, I mean, making a brand such a wonderful brand, but trying to make it that, speaks to the next generation, it's not just about, you can't just, and you've seen this fail where, where it's oversimplified and you think it's just by sketching some shorter dresses, <laughs> you do that. It's everything, every touch point of the process from production to fit, to communication, to stores, it all has to pricing and fabrics. It all has to be taken into account. And I'm so grateful that I, um, you know, was kind of forced to learn all of these different things because now it's made me the ultimate micromanager. <laughs> <laughs> no, but exactly. I mean, you know, 360, how every single part should work. And that that's so rare. Um, yeah. So, it, so yes. Yeah, so I got the call. I, I was excited about it. And 
um, a year after I started, which, which is also a really important thing because this is so, 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 so rare is in a transition of a house from the founder to the, you know, the next person who comes in as creative director, very rarely is there an overlap. Right. You no, know, unfortunately it usually happens after the founder passes away mm. or, you know, some, some, some breakup happens with the house and the founder, mm. but this was so lovely because Mrs. Herrera made it lovely. So we spent one year together I'd sit with her in fittings. I'd be here every day. Every person I met in the company, I met because she introduced me to them, all the pattern makers, the seamstresses. I worked beside her on four collections and really learned a lot from her. And it, it, it I think it gave her a trust, you know, in me too. And then and she, at the end of that year, she took her final bow at a nighttime show at um, MoMA and I came out with roses for her. And then that was the last day, and this is extraordinary, that she came to the office. Ever. She hasn't been back since. Unbelievable. We have a great relationship. <laughs> Ronaldo, Mrs. Herrera, Paul, and myself will go out to um, brunch a couple times a month or dinner. And we don't speak a word about fashion or work. It's a very church and state. And <laughs> how cool, though. Like, it's incredible the strength that takes for her, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, everything we're making says Carolina Herrera, right? <laughs> and so the, the trust that I'm not going to do something that will embarrass her or ruin that brand, like it's still her name. And it's just a remarkable amount of courage and strength and trust that I'm very grateful for. Because I think without that, or had she kind of been one foot in, one foot out, it would have been very hard for me to find my way. And what do you think the most important thing that you learned working side by side with her was? And, and was there a moment where you knew that you had her full confidence? I think the most important thing I learned was a trust in yourself. You know, she's tough. And even when she'd have people around her or stylists saying, it'd be cooler if you do this, it'd be better if you do this. If she didn't like it, she wouldn't do it. She would have that strength. And if you look at the history of her era from 1981, she was pretty true always to her aesthetic. Even when moments when it was about grunge or whatever was going on in fashion, she stayed true to Herrera. And it really, you know, and she has a quote, something to the effect of, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but that the idea that sometimes the most rebellious thing you can do is to be elegant. I love that. She was doing elegance and designing very chic, glamorous clothes, even in moments when that was not at all the style and mm -hmm. everyone was telling her to switch it up. So just that that strength of conviction, I think, was really important. And also, I think there was just a balanced perspective, right? I mean, Mrs. Herrera has kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. She'd have a nice hour-long lunch with some friends every day in her office. She, you know, would enjoy the day, would laugh, would walk around um, the two floors of our office and chat with people and laugh. And there was a joy. And I really think... Any, any person who's a creative, right, whether you're an architect, a sculptor, a fashion designer, or whatever you may be, I, I think ultimately your mindset and your happiness level and your joy of life shows itself in your output. It shows itself in what you're doing, right? If you're a tense, stressed, angry, kind of nervous person, you can sometimes see that in the work. Mm -hmm. And she, she lives her life with, with a joy and a smile and a laughter. And I think that's why women feel pretty in Herrera dresses. They're, they're happy clothes. 
They're beautiful clothes. It's so funny, Wes. We opened a box of pre-fall, I guess, yesterday, and I was in an office. Oh, um, next shipping, right? <laughs> I never like a job, <laughs> um, but I was li- I was in an office next door, and all of a sudden, I heard like a ooh ooh. Like I, I really, I thought I didn't. I don't know. Didn't know what happened, and I opened my door to look what was happening, and they were opening the boxes of Herrera, and the dresses were so spectacular, and and they were so just ooh and ah, and and to be able to make something like that and make a whole group of girls and boys in our back room, you know. I love that story. <laughs> no, I love that. Well, you, listen, you, <laughs> uh, your, your stores are so special and so beautiful, and we're also proud to be a part of them because I think you have such a consistent aesthetic too, and I know so many women, you know, in New York and other cities who completely rely on your edit and your point of view because I think you share a lot of, there's a lot of overlap about the things we value. It's color, it's joy, mm. it's happy, it's pretty, it's beautiful. And that's not to say I don't have the utmost respect for a very philosophical designer who's creating something that's a reflection on, you know, the turmoils in the world. <laughs> and there's a lot that we need to talk about to address. But, you know, there's also something to be said, and it's not frivolous for just celebrating beauty. Beauty. And in a world that's dark, that can be dark. The antidote to that is not more darkness. It's 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 light and color and laughter and joy. My story definitely doesn't connect to a group of people, and and I because I do think it's hard to be. I think it can be intimidating to walk into a room and be beautiful and be noticed. You know, a lot of people aren't ready for that. That's interesting you say that because people always ask me who's the Herrera woman, and I say she's a woman who wants to be at the center of the room. Right. She <laughs> wants to be remembered. And she's, yeah, no one comes to Herrera. And I don't think anyone really goes to Capitol either, probably mm. for an outfit to just disappear or blend in. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, it's so true, but it, but it's, a, but it's a real thing. And like, you know, our woman is like, if everyone on the sidewalk is in gray and tan and black, she's going to wear orange or hot pink. That takes courage. It takes courage and it takes confidence. And it's about dressing for yourself, it's about putting on the pieces that make you feel great. And I'm really obsessed now with this idea, and I explored it with our Rio collection of just kind of challenging these notions we have of what is casual and what is dressy, what is daytime and what is nighttime. I mean, if I have my atelier or incredible pattern makers drape an incredible, you know, beautiful, one-shouldered, intricate, couture-like detail that would typically be done in a silk file or a chiffon, and we cut it instead in a cotton, you know, like the, it, it, it's just kind of twisting these pieces upside down. And it's the notion that none of those old fashioned ideas matter. It, it's about what makes you feel fabulous and wearing that. How has being a father changed you? I mean, I, I laugh more every day. I smile more every day. Um, <laughs> I wake up earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Go to bed to more tired. (laughs) You know, anyone who's a parent knows this. It just adds so much more joy to your life than you you didn't realize that was missing until you have it. And I rush home every day. I won't do any dinner that's before bedtime because I work, you know, so I I have two windows where I get to see the kids. It's early morning and it's before bedtime. And those are my like sacred times now. But it's amazing. And every day is it just we have between our dog, our little baby girl and our two year old boy. <laughs> it's just like cuteness overload. This little <laughs> What are you most proud of that you've contributed to the house over the last five years? You know, I, I consider myself to be 
a custodian or a guardian of the legacy that she's built and that I think we've made it speak to a lot more women, you know, just ages, regions, maybe women who didn't previously wear Herrera are now wearing Herrera and having fun in Herrera. I think aesthetically, one of my bigger contributions has really been color. You, you know, just, just as an example, the house colors were kind of a soft gray and brown before I started, and now it's pink and red. And it started from really, you know, thinking about what was Herrera, what is Herrera, what should Herrera be, and how can I impact that? You know, that Warhol portrait of Mrs. Herrera, this famous yeah. Warhol portrait from the late 70s, is a famous story. She traded a, a gold Minodier with Andy Warhol for him to do her portrait. <laughs> and, you know, she has the red lip, the pink eyeshadow, the big chandelier earrings, the center part, the, the halter dress. And it's in those Warhol Technicolors. And, you know, that to me is everything, everything that Herrera should be. And so I started kind of thinking of our colors as these very pure, bright, happy colors. And I haven't really deviated from that in the past five years. So every season, if you look, I mean, we use these like taxi cab yellows and flamingo pinks because as a house founded by a strong, confident, very cool woman from Venezuela who then came to New York and, you know, as a mother of four and, and she was 41, decided to just open a fashion house, like <laughs> we need these energetic, bold, bright colors. This is not shy. So color has been really something that I think has become synonymous with Herrera now. And same with our prints, these large scale, bold prints. You know, I think a color or a print is either happy or sad, right? And it could fall into one of two buckets. And anything that just I, I read as sad, I <laughs> won't go near in terms of incorporating it in the collection. Do you understand why somebody like Karl Lagerfeld was successful at Chanel? Like, what does it take? What What it sounds to me like is it takes real respect for who for the house you're designing for to be successful. And you, it sounds like you have that in spades. But what do you think it takes? I mean, I think that's true, but I think we could probably, without naming names, come up with examples of people who didn't necessarily respect or care about the house before they arrived and did something remarkably successful with it. True, true. But that's certainly not what I want to do here. And I, and I think actually Karl Lagerfeld's a great example of someone who every collection was just essentially a love letter to Coco Chanel and Chanel. And I feel very lucky to work at a house where I feel at home, right? Where I'm not having to look at two shades of red and think, even though I, Wes, like this one better, I think this color is more appropriate for Herrera. Yeah. Like, I don't have that. There's not that duality for me that I have to reconcile. You know, I, I can trust that the one I like is also right for Herrera. And it's because I'm at a brand that is a good fit for me. Aesthetically, it's a brand I respect. It's a brand I've grown up loving. And it's a it, it, it's stylistically and taste wise like you know I it fits with what I like. What do you think a, a sixteen year old Wes would would think about the life that you've created as a designer and a husband and a father? And do you think you would believe it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, do I think I would believe it? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would. You know, it's, it was a lot, you know, I'm not done. And it took a lot of anxious, sleepless days and nights to get to this <laughs> point. Um, but, you know, I, I would, 
I was very lucky as a 16 year old and it's something I wish for certainly my own kids and every person is if you find that thing in life that you're passionate about and you know that that makes you happy where work doesn't feel like work go after it with everything you've got you know regardless of whether or not the kids you go to school with will understand or any of that none of that stuff matters and I I was lucky to have found it but no I I am a happy I try to be a happy person I have so much in my life that makes me happy and I think it's easier to design happy clothes if, if you're a happy person <laughs> What did you wear to prom? I just saw this picture not that long ago. I wore a, um, it was like a navy suit. Ooh. Two buttons, so boxy, needed like serious <laughs> altering. I just saw it. It was like so gangly in it. And like pants <laughs> that were too long and too wide in the leg. And a big boutonniere. What color? Boutonniere? I think it was pink. We had lots Ooh. of dances. We had one that was called PDC, which is where the girls invite the guys. But yeah, prom. Prom was an early <laughs> night for me. Oh, thank you, Wes, so much for taking the time. Um, I appreciate it so much. My and, pleasure. Um, Anytime. I love chatting with you. And really, thank you for everything. You're amazing. And we're so well, proud to work with you. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. Please follow us on Instagram at What We Wore Podcast for additional content and show updates. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.